Hello and welcome to a Taylor's Tales podcast. This is Chris's Corner. I'm your host, Chris Taylor, and welcome back to a Taylor's Tales podcast. This week, I have a brand new guest, and I'm excited to get this guy on because he's as excited as I am about movies and films, which is fantastic to already have. It's George Pierce, everybody. Round of, round of applause straight in. Hello. How you doing, George? I'm all right. I'm good. Thanks for having me. That's all right, mate. No, um, jump straight right in, mate. Cool. First question, how would you describe yourself to people who don't know you? Uh, well, I'm, my name is George. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a school teacher. I work at a secondary school here in uh, Chelmsford, Essex. I teach media studies, film uh, and English. Um, film, uh, I studied it at, in uh, university. I studied media at university. So uh, things like film and television and uh, any kind of general media really is somewhat of a passion, not so much to in terms of films to indulge in, but for other medias more as a uh, social uh, idea to kind of you know study and to see how we as people kind of use the media and how it's benefited us as as, uh, as individuals. So yeah, kind of, uh, yeah. That's Great me. intro, mate. That's a few all round summed up. I was going to ask straight off the bat, like what sort of, you know, you, as you as a character and somebody who's... In, putting like an impression on young people's mind what makes film so appealing to you um that's a good one i think film is appealing because if you take you know modern uh, art as a concept you know or art throughout the ages really art has always been something that is a still image and it's something that you know you can only tell a story through one single frame or of that painting whereas with film i think film is intriguing because what it did was it revolutionized how image can be used so in this case through moving image and um you know considering if we look at the film industries of today and how big they are um although people might not be seeing them from an artistic viewpoint uh it is the artistic nature that is what makes those films successful whether that be the cinematography or the uh editing or the soundtrack or the mise-en-scene or anything like that uh is what uh really makes film uh incredible so for me it's about uh showing young people that um you know, this is the more modern style of art in a way and and, and trying to inspire them to uh, take hold of that and run with it because, uh, you know, I think it's fair to say that media industries are the biggest growing industries in the world. So it would make sense to get younger people to jump on that wagon while while uh, they can and while it's at the moment it's still very fresh and evolving mm. um, yeah yeah no that, that's really well put and the idea of, of a film is it's literally what well, if leonardo dicaprio sort of like sorry leonardo da vinci not leonardo mm. dicaprio <laughs> he's um, the modern da vinci, the modern da vinci. <laughs> but like the, the idea like if da vinci was nowadays he probably wouldn't have like painted because he was so engine it, you know he had that engineering mm-hmm. mind as well mm-hmm. so i always think like art is re- a reflection of how we've just evolved as yeah. people and it's kind of intri- intriguing to hear you say a similar thing where the idea of film is just a progression of art and yeah it, that, and that was exactly what i was literally gonna was gonna put it as it is it is the most logical progression from still image art or painting to then filmmaking i think is the next logical progression um what comes after filmmaking i don't know but um i definitely think moving image has definitely uh revolutionized art as a as a as a context yeah yeah, 
exactly and you know there's there's something about film that brings out the, the romantic in us in, in, well for me personally i love the idea of, of putting a story on film and the idea of being able to tell a story you know the the whole um joseph campbell hero story goes throughout time and history and the fact that we can now recreate that and show that on the big screen um, mm. or in our case just two lads just chatting shit for you know just for an hour to, to be able to sort of like reflect upon how much we love a subject and I always think to myself like I remember when I was younger that film had such an impact on me emotionally and I was gonna say do you, when you're sort of tr- trying to get across you know the the the, in, the intricacies of media how is that quite a difficult task when doing that with kids? You know, they're quite, you know, immature in some ways and it can be quite a task. You know? I think they find it easier with things like media because it's it's something that is literally thrown into their laps from the moment they're born. I mean, if we look at modern children, you know, every one of them has a has a, uh, a mobile platform, has a mobile phone, has a device, has games, consoles, laptops, computers, watches, uh, tablets you know they have this from day dot uh where, which we didn't have so um you know I, I think it's easier to get them to uh find intrigue in it because it's it's a, such a familiar viewpoint to them it's something that they just know like like that so um i think that's more simplistic i think the more difficult side of it is actually trying them to trying to get them to understand uh like i said before the artistic side of things so you're talking about the romanticisms that film can can deliver um it's looking at actually you know trying to get them to understand what makes a film feel romantic or scary or uh you know action-packed or whatever like to to make them understand that side of things and to become familiar with that i think is the harder side but you do find that they do tend to get get it eventually i mean i think it's very i think i'd i would be remiss to, to think if any student i've had couldn't grasp the concept of genre uh at the you know by the time they finished with media studies yeah i mean definitely i mean <laughs> not to give them a hard time but at 17 i don't remember being that you know having that in-depth knowledge or even now yes. for instance that, that ability to analyze a film um i don't know about you george but when i was uh for instance in english literature we had one of these tasks where we had to analyze uh the dark knight and we had to <laughs> i remember piece that by piece and yeah. it, it was like for me like i love the dark knight but it's mm-hmm. a completely different task altogether for i think we were like 15 or something like that to go through and analyze you know the camera shots and the mm. sound and the mm, things. Mm, mm, how would you you now having done that yourself when you were younger how would you improve upon that? uh well I, I remember doing that i actually remember getting and i think it was the only english assignment i got an a in but i think i think that <laughs> i think that was the the birth of where i started realizing oh this is something i, I want to do because like I, I you know i must say a lot if i was able to 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 do well in that subject so i think uh, i just me took too, i got a b for the first time so yeah. <laughs> but um do i think it, it is difficult i think it is one you i think but it would be i, I think it would be for any you know in any kind of sort form of analysis you know if you're for, if you're analyzing english literature for example you know even though i teach english literature um and i have an idea of an, of analytical 
skills when it comes to English and, and, and literature, um, I still find that very difficult because being able to look at, uh, you know, text and try and look at the suggestions that are being made in there for the one that comes to mind as I'm thinking of, of mice and men, there's a, uh, a part where, uh, Curly's wife enters the barn, which George and, uh, uh, Lenny are in and, and, and she, and she's introduced by as blocking out the, the sunshine that is coming into the, to the barn that they're in. And that, you know, you could analyze as a sense of foreboding and the fact that she is going to bring, uh, she is going to bring a sense of darkness to this, uh, to the, to the book and, and to the story and uh, to the narrative as a whole. So uh, I, I think with film, I personally would think that film is somewhat easier on the basis that it's more visual. And I think it's a lot easier to analyze visual concepts than it is to visualize textual, uh, uh, you know, uh, text in general. So um, I, I think with, uh, with any, but like, like I said, with anything, it, it's difficult to begin with. But once you start, you know, understanding that certain colors represent different feelings and can be connotated to different ideas and then you can then take that a step further by looking at how representations are used and how uh conventions of genres are used and so on and so forth and then you can take that even further with camera work and angles and editing and um i think eventually it will just have come to you but uh yeah i think with most things it's just a difficult it, it would be a it's a difficult thing to start with but you should eventually develop yeah I, t- I totally agree because the film it, like you say, the visual aspect makes it a lot easier for you to understand. And in in the case of books, you know, you've got to have that mental visualization to be able to think, ah, oh, what does that actually mean? Mm. So I, mm. I get you on that one, definitely. Yeah, see, they were filmed completely blocks that you don't need to think about what they're trying to show you because they yeah. are just physically showing you what you're trying to analyze. Yeah. Yeah, and you've you've sort of tripped onto one of the other things. There is that uh, high quality film normally does a lot of showing and less telling. So it is mm. intriguing to to compare reading where you're being told the story, but in film, uh, a solid film has the ability to just show you and not have to tell you what's going on. Yeah, yeah, I I would agree with that. Because um, I, I I think you 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 very I mean that's a whole different conversation, but I think you're <laughs> you're definitely spot on when you say that modern film. It's definitely far more show than tell, um, you know, how the bigger budgets is being put into, you know, explosions, fight scenes, buildings collapsing, you know, the uh, the decimation of areas and, you know, all of these things. But and as much as they're visually, you know, incredible, um, you're right. It does then remove the storytelling element because uh, which for me is not what i want in a film i'm much more of the story than i am what i'm physically seeing yeah is is there a specific like film that comes to mind to you when you when it represents your sort of ideals in film well my favorite film would be forrest gump do i think that hits those ideals though i don't know i mean the storytelling set uh side of things i I think it it tells a great story incredibly well but then also the visual elements are there i would say it's more uh and and in other films like lord of the rings do the same thing i mean lord of the rings is a perfect example actually of storytelling done correctly because Mm -hmm. if you're able to create a you know a nine hour at a minimum trilogy and yet 
keep people contained to the story the whole way, then you must be doing something right. And at that time of 2001 to 2003, it's not like they had the budget to make mass explosion but still what they did with the visual elements was was very impressive uh but if i compare that to films like you know the avengers for example or any of the superhero films they don't rely on or they don't need to rely on narrative and story because predominantly the the story it doesn't matter at the end of the day you've got iron man spider-man captain america batman superman whoever they're they're i icons and that's what people are there to see there it doesn't matter if he's fighting if spider-man's fighting you know carnage or fighting just whoever like it's Man, whoever, uh, yeah. exactly but because uh, ultimately you're there to watch spider-man do some cool flips stick to buildings and beat up a bad guy that's what you go for it doesn't matter the story so um i think we are coming out and i think blockbuster films are less about um story and are more about visual and i think scorsese made a point uh with avengers where he called them theme park movies <laughs> he did uh, didn't he, he did oh do. that was so savage that was and, uh, and i get his point now i can see why people are upset by that but going back to what you're asking about do what follows those ideals mm-hmm. i would argue that i think that's what he's talking about is they are just visual um uh, you know they're there for visual entertainment they're not there for a story and and, and storytelling and uh, i think that's what he meant by that and i would agree with him i i you know i don't think a, uh, an industry like disney are particularly bothered about the, the script or the story as long as they've got you know spider-man or iron man or captain america doing what they need to do then they're going to sell tickets and that's what they want so yeah i mean the only pushback i would put on that is that the characters themselves that's the reason why people yes. don't see them that's yes not, uh, the character the development yeah yes character. no character development is is definitely done well uh in those but uh yeah in terms of narrative for that yeah. specific film you're watching i don't think that really makes uh a difference either way you know as long as the character's developing and you've got them doing all the cool stuff that people want to see then you, you you've got a you've got a successful film uh, I do remember being a sucker for that, George, back in 2012 when Avengers, the original, came out. So oh, when yeah. they said Hulk smash, I was like, yes, you've got my money. <laughs> so al- although I totally get it, you're right. You're, you've hit the nail on the head when it comes down to um, artistic. And I want to get back to uh, Forrest Gump because I myself love that film as well. And I think to myself that actually it's one of those few films that even though he's telling you the story along the way, the visuals match his ability yes. to tell you this beautiful story uh, along with a character who you think is less intelligent, but actually it turns out he was more intelligent than the majority of the people mm. around him. Exactly. Time. Exactly. I think, I think that's a good prospect is not only is the story, the story itself, very well written and thought out um but also the the hidden morals behind it are very well thought out you know the context being the fact that he is a simple man but then has achieved more in his life than because through his simplicity than people who are intelligent have ever succeeded and and i I, you know that is i think what makes a good film where you can tell a narrative but also have a hidden moral behind it because that in itself 
tells a completely different story from what you've just watched. So, um, and I think that's a true art of storytelling to be able to do that in, in, uh, for people to, to not only have, you know, a set narrative with plot points, but also to then intertwine that with, uh, a contextual background of, uh, and morals then yeah i think that's that's exactly how storytelling should be yeah and it's it's one of those films that has endless quotes from it and like the the run exactly. forest run we all know that we all grew up with that exactly beautiful. uh and the best films are quote quotable to the end and, and like you referenced lord of the rings as well um I, I, the only uh criticism i remember from the 2003 when they won all the oscars was that jack nicholson said there were so many endings like what's going on like the the lord of the rings had like that fourth or fifth like series mm. where they went to black and then they brought it back again where they went for uh for another mm. ending to, to extend the film but that was how the book was so exactly you gotta you gotta give them some sort of oh you give them some credit for what yeah. peter jackson achieved because you know if you've ever read into it the how how difficult it was to get that off the ground in the first place and mm-hmm. they did it and to a, to a uh, an extent where you know we're nearly 20 years later i think it actually would be this christmas 20 years since the first film came out we've that films are still loved and well known so they must have done something right yes yeah, they did, but and uh, uh, you know, speaking of Peter Jackson, he's a director who has a very specific sort of visual theme when mm-hmm. it comes down to how he directs. Do you have a favourite director who who you've watched the majority of their work for? I would say I have. I'd, I'd say I don't have an outright favourite. I don't think, but I have favourites for different things. Mm-hmm. So. If I, I'd say out of my top list, I'd, I'd say I've got um, Alfred Hitchcock, Stanley Kubrick, uh, Quentin Tarantino, Martin Scorsese, um, and probably John Hughes. They're my five, and I would, and all of them for different reasons. Hitchcock for his ability to uh, create suspense and tension, and that in itself links into your storytelling. Uh, point you know because to create suspense depend is all dependent on the way you're telling the story yeah um and so he he did some you know he did he talked about one time about you know you could have two people in a room having a conversation about football or baseball i think he said um and all of a sudden a bomb goes off and everybody in and you're giving the audience uh two seconds of oh my god what just happened that's crazy but he said let's redo that and now bef- those people are in the room, but at the very beginning, we're going to show a bomb underneath their chairs. And then the camera will pan up and then they have their conversation. Now, what you've done is the same thing's going to happen, but now you're going to have five minutes of the audience going, get out of there. There's a bomb underneath your chair, which they're unaware of. So now they know that bomb is going to go off at some point, any minute, um, which creates the tension. And then when the explosion does happen, you're still with that, that two seconds of, (gasps) but it's almost enhanced because everyone was waiting for it. And, and so when it does inevitably happen, the the shock value is bigger, Um, which I think was, is, and that is how storytelling should be done in filmmaking. Um, Stanley Kubrick for visual um, because of, you know, 2001 and what he did with, with that, which for a film to come out in the eighties to, to do that sense of 
uh, cinematography was just incredible. Um, the soundtrack behind that alone. Um, and the yeah. soundtracks. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Um, you've got uh, Quentin Tarantino for dialogue yeah. um, with his ability to keep audiences interested in dialogue that makes no link to the film. Like the beginning of... Um, of Pulp Fiction is a perfect example where they're talking about Royale with cheese. Now that has absolutely zero to do with the film other than the fact that you know that Vince has been abroad, which doesn't really make any difference to the film, but it's, it's quoted and it's recognized because it's so indulging because you're, you're stuck into it. And also he does a very clever thing where at the beginning of Pulp Fiction, where you have Tim Roth and, um, the female, his what his wife girlfriend character. The the first very line of that film is he goes, is he lights a cigarette and he says, "Forget it, it's too risky." Mm-hmm. And what that does is, at the very beginning of the film, you've created a pledge to the audience saying that whatever they're talking about was really something quite exciting, which means now the conversation they're having, which is completely nothing to do with anything, you're hooked the whole time because you're expecting something to happen from just the first line of the film. So that that for, for dialogue would be Tarantino, just because I think that, that that's an incredible talent to have. Um, uh, and then the other, Scorsese, because um, Scorsese, I just think he... he yeah he made revolutionized film to a degree where he's, you know, a taxi driver and uh, even underrated films like um, King, uh, King, uh, the King of comedy and stuff like that, which have now been inspired by films like the Joker and uh, which were inspirations for the Joker, I should say. Um, And then, uh, yeah, John Hughes for, for more of a heartfelt family with things like home alone and uncle bark and, um, Planes, Trains and Automobiles, uh, Breakfast Club, you know, he, he took family comedy, made it very emotional, but, you know, but also relatable, I think, to everybody, which I think is a very hard skill to, to do. And also his comedy uh, aspects were very slapstick, which I'm not usually a big fan of, but somehow he managed to make slapstick comedy very funny, and also make it very emotional at the same time. Yeah, I love. Wow, where do, where do we begin? Right there, I start with Hughes, <laughs> just because I love okay, his it. work as well. Because I think to myself, like, you want to be able to feel for character. Uncle Buck is a great example. Like, yes, that's just a yeah. family film that we could mm-hmm. all watch and enjoy, and at the same time, there's so much emotion to be had mm. for the characters, the relationship between how he basically takes the um, niece from basically destroying her entire life, you know, within the space of a weekend. And that whole relationship of how he slowly, you know, opens up to her in order to be able to, you know, show the, mm. the dark side of life as well as, as the positive side. Um, so, uh, you know what? He, Hughes kind of resembles to me the Ferris Bueller's Day Off sort of vibe to that cinema era. Yeah, it is. I it's, love that. It's, it's, it's to make family, because I, I think that's one thing we don't really have as much of anymore is family films. I think people mm. would argue that like Avengers and superhero films are family films, but they're not on that level mm. where no. you've got a, a film about a family who, um, you know, with 
the comedy aspects that is both funny for young people and adults. And I think that's almost quite difficult to, to achieve these days. And I think mm. you're right. Uncle Buck is a, it's a great example of that. And also, you know, one of, by one of my opinion, one of the best comedy actors of the time, John oh, Candy. So John Candy, we'll um, miss him. Man. What, what a man. He, he does remind me also of a couple of guys nowadays who have this comedic ability and I do worry about their health. You know, you, you, you sort of <laughs> think they're living so hard and so fast that it kind of, you know, it, it can spread and sort of, you see that in their characters, their ability to show that. I think Chris Farley is a great example as well. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know if you ever saw his, him with, uh, I can't remember the film itself, but he was in so many SNL sketches, so many sort of extreme, where he's he's quite a big guy like John Candy, mm. uh, and yet he brings his all to every year. So if you ever get the chance, Chris Farley is also a great comparison. To, Definitely will. To make. And, uh, you know, Hughes as well, like that era of film, I don't think it's actually... You know, I don't think we can do it nowadays because people are so. Every family is different. It, you know, ironically, when back in the day we used to think different was bad, nowadays different is good, and it's the only way forward. And everybody's got to be a special snowflake in order to be able to, like, mm. be able to show that in film. And the idea of these films was that, you know, we were all similar. There was a family element that we all had to mm, mm, sort mm, of mm. go to. Yeah. Which is interesting because you talk about similarity and difference, but I feel like film industries these days don't really indulge in difference in terms of uh, the films they make anymore. You know, I think it speaks volumes when a director of Scorsese's caliber is Mm. being forced to make films for Netflix because cinemas and industries that that buy that make films for cinema aren't willing to take a punt on him because his films do not are not in line with you know the, those blockbuster films and i think it says it speaks volumes when uh, the major the biggest biggest sellout films of the last decade are predominantly disney yeah. um and those are the films that are getting kids in the door and that's because they've got a set product that they are just recycling again and again and again yeah, I'm, I love that you brought that up because uh, for me, and I'm quoting Guy Ritchie here, another one of my favorite. Oh, yeah, Guy characters. Ritchie, yeah, very good. Um, lives down the road. It's just down <laughs> the way. Isn't, isn't too far away in Wiltshire. Um, and he's he said it that back in the day when he was making Snatch, when he was making um, Lock, Stock and Two Smoking Barrels, you know, all of these fantastic small indie films, he said he'd be able to put some money together, persuade a studio to take a risk on him. And he'd be able to release the film and he wouldn't hear about the the figures or the monetary value until months later, until the, the film had been out for a while or gone to DVD or whatever you want to call it nowadays. And nowadays, he said, when he made King Arthur, which, you know, six or seven out of ten, not an amazing film. Oh, no, no, yeah, yeah. Definitely not his best work, yeah. Yeah, exactly. But at the same time, all people focused on was the money so mm-hmm. not even the day of, of release he said when and he said that the producers were already messaging him saying 
oh, the film is going to make this much money. It's going to be a flop, basically. So mm-hmm. he was already being like kicked out of the door before he, mm-hmm. you know, get been given this. And I think another thing he was saying was that he had to use CGI because he felt obliged to use it because of today's focus. Yeah, I think that's that's it. I think that that hits the nail on the head. I think film industries are just in are, are more or less. I don't think film has become become something for industries such as Warner Brothers or Disney or or, or Miramax or whoever who are making these films. I don't think they're thinking long term. Mm. For these films companies now, it's it's how much money can we can we recuperate in a short amount of time yeah. which is why we always talk about you know the first week of a film out that is almost the indicator now of how much a film how well a film how successful a film is um which you know is completely crazy because yes the first week is important because you can see that but that's just to see um hype and excitement and and but you know what you're not also thinking is the other three weeks that that film's going to be in plus also the dvd and monetary releases out of on you know the selling it to netflix and those things you are always going to i mean i find it very difficult to think to to believe that there's a film today that isn't making its money back at all i mean i might be wrong by that but i can't remember a film that that didn't make a full return on its investment oh that's oh i think i can think of one off the top of my head this was ages ago by the way this was 2015 Mm -hmm. that this Mm -hmm. happened so i don't know whether you class that as no no yes that's recent yeah but it was pan uh remake basically oh right yeah yeah, with hugh jackman i don't know if you remember that at all but Mm -hmm. like hugh jackman uh was in it and they had like a massive crew and they spent something like 200 million uh pounds on it something crazy like that and they didn't make their money back it was like the first time that it ever happened because the film itself was rubbish Mm. and nobody went to see it because all they'd heard was was bad reviews so there's one (laughs) yeah but i think but i think that's what it says a lot about that film they're willing to plug two hundred million dollars into a film that's already been made. Yeah. Like, for, and they're doing that consistently. The amount of remakes. I mean, I don't know how many Ghostbuster films are on now, but oh God, you know yeah. what I mean. Like, it's yeah. why is that money? You could take two hundred million dollars, and you could you could split that into. I mean, God, you don't even need that much, but you could split that into fifty million dollar budgets. That's now four films on fifty million dollars, and give them to four independent filmmakers and i can guarantee you they would make your money back because you've now got four films all of which have got their own unique stories are creative and are being done by people who yes might not have the most experience but they're telling you they're the people that are going to put the effort in because they're the ones who want it to be successful people who are you know if you're someone along the lines of you know, I look at people like, like Michael Bay is a perfect example. Yeah. Michael Bay does not care what his films are. He will direct them because they make money. That's it. He doesn't care about the the story or whatever. It's 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 monetary gain. And that's why, in my opinion, all of Michael Bay's films are absolute dog shit. Um, you know, just because you have a world record for the amount of friggin' explosions does not make a good film. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and I think that, and I don't, 
believe, unfortunately, that that pattern is going to end anytime soon. Uh, I want to emphasize upon your point there. Fast and Furious. That mm. all I need to say right there is, mm. is, is that yeah, that's perfect. franchise, like, how is it still going? Exactly. And, and it's exactly what you've just pointed out. It's like, why? It's like, mm. there's nothing to it. It's, it's the same storyline being told mm. over and over again. It's taking a two-dimensional idea and just running with it. And it's like, you, what else can we talk about other than the fact that Vin Diesel was driving a car really fast? <laughs> like, it's, not, it's, not, it's not entertaining. If, if it, it, is, it is when it was maybe the first one or two, but when you're yeah. getting to nine, then there has to be a point where you realize that your audience, but this is, I just think, I think this is where film has lost its artistic nature, going back to the very original point you made. And it is all about money. They know Fast and Furious is successful. Let's just make not a ninth one. It'll, it, you know, it'll make, it'll make the money we want. That's a return. Boom, done. And that's it. That's, that's as simple as, as I think industries are now going. Because, you know, there's a, an argument that people make, and I think Peter Jackson even said it, and a lot of people have said it, that Lord of the Rings would not, would not, if they introduce the idea now of Lord of the Rings, it would never sell because there's no company out there that is willing to make three, a trilogy of three hour films on something that has not had any basis of, of success before. The only reason The Hobbit was allowed was because of the success of Lord of the Rings. Otherwise, I very much doubt we'd be having a Hobbit trilogy. Yeah, yeah fun fact on the Lord of the Rings, uh, when they were first getting it up and running, um, I th- I'm pretty sure that it was Harvey Weinstein was the guy mm-hmm. who gave them the budget. Yep. You know, he was the guy who initially wanted it to, to, to run. It was actually almost his birth child along with Peter Jackson. And um, he actually donated $20 million after he left Miramax to go to New Line and he actually gave because they'd already invested money in into props so he gave them the things that they'd invested if he got a cut of the uh of the profits and actually back then that was when they were looking at making uh two films yeah. and it was New Line uh who said we'll we'll make three yeah um so yeah I love that you know that George that's so good and and on top of that um, I want to go to the point you were trying to make as well with the idea of how the money can get involved. I think the only film that I've seen in the past 10 years that was not CGI based and they took to raw stunts and raw action was, believe it or not, a sequel, which was Mad Max Fury Road. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, yeah, yeah. to me, that's like the only film that I've seen personally that has sort of said well no we're not going to do what you lot have been doing this entire time mm. we're actually going to make a good story use an actor who's fantastic at using body language and try and make a you know a brand new story which they did and i thought it was brilliant behind that i don't know about you george no no i i agree i i feel like that's what we need more of and i think it's again says a lot when that film was as successful as it was mm. it's clear that Clearly that works, which, and I think it's just because people are dying for, you know, a more uh, respected product as opposed to just churning out the same stuff. Um, I mean, and I think, I think Disney are the biggest, uh, they're the biggest, what would the word be? 
factors. <laughs> yeah, uh, they're the biggest factor in that, I think, because they have got just such a large collection that they can just revisit. I mean, you know, the CGI remakes of Jungle Book, Lion King, the mm-hmm. the 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 life action uh, Mulan and um, uh, Beauty and the Beast, and you know, they those are films that are already done, just remaking them, but with a twist and I think that's what really kind of kicked it all off. And I think that just was further than pursued by other companies who realized that that was a very successful model. Um, however, after a decade of doing that, I, I know it's starting to become a little bit boring. And I think it also says a lot when the independent films on Netflix are starting to outweigh that of the cinema. Now, a lot of people would put that down to the fact that, um, that that comes down to because people don't want to go to the cinema because it's it's more accessible on your yeah. on your television. But I I would disagree. I don't think you can. I don't think any film is. I think part of a film is being in the cinema. Is the is because I think people don't acknowledge. I mean, you know, a big example is is Christopher Nolan, who is a yeah. big. Uh, ambassador for films in cinema and I think a lot of them are like Quentin Tarantino you know these uh, these uh, directors who have been in the industry for a long enough time you know it's it's I think it's ironic that they're the ones who well irony is not the right word but they're the ones who want films to be portrayed in cinemas because it is the you know Chris Nolan used IMAX cameras you know, you're not going to get a benefit from that at your house. He's done that because he wants you to go to the cinema because he knows that's where you're going to get the surround sound. That's where you're going to get the widescreen. That's where you're going to get every visual representation he's trying to portray into his films. So, um, yeah, I, I think the argument people make about uh, that, that making remakes works, yes, but I think people should be looking at the fact that a lot of independent films on on Netflix and other streaming services are also uh, very popular. And yeah. if you put those films in cinemas, would people still go see them? 100%. I think so. A hundred percent. I'm like you, George. The cinema to me almost brings me home. I have mm. such a close relationship with wanting to go to the cinema. If I mm. have anywhere in this world that i love more it is going to to the movies because it's such an experience yes it's expensive who cares you're getting to see someone's art it is the place you go like the museum when you go to the museum you pay to go in to see art you go in to see or or to go see old bones whatever the point being is that it's a theater it's there for Mm. you to experience and to me that that can't be bought. I'm going to link this a little bit. George, you're, are you a Back to the Future fan? So love Back to the Future. I love all of them. I think all three of that. I think that was one of the only film trilogies. Uh, well, maybe not the only one, but it is a very it's a film trilogy that did it right across all three films. I totally I agree. Opinion. So I was going to link it in. Do you remember the scene where they have Jaws 9 come up mm-hmm. in the scene? Isn't that ironic that they predicted in the 80s that we would be living in the exact same time frame? Mm-hmm. You know, and different films altogether. I think, yeah. I think uh, Robert Zemeckis, who directed that um, that film, I think, you know, along with Spielberg, I think they, you know, mm-hmm. being Spielberg, I mean, he, 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 you know, he's, he's, he knows what he's he knows what he's talking about. And I think they, they did add the right stuff elements in there. I think that was a very, a very factual point to make um, that we are just churning out the same 
films. And if he could see it in the 80s, then... Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's that want for, for newness, isn't it? You know, this is the irony, isn't it? That you'll go through Netflix and you have to search and search for new stuff, don't you? And, and normally, the majority of the time, and I know this from people, is that they'll just go with something they've already watched or they'll go with something that is up on the popular screen. And it, they, they, it may not even be a good film, but they're like, oh, I can't be to look through to be able to find something that's actually worth watching, you know? And mm. that can be a little bit of what I would think of as catalogue fatigue. Um, yes, so, I, I, you know, I agree. I think, uh, yeah, I, I, I would uh, definitely agree on that. I think... Um, Yeah, yeah, I just agree. I don't really have much to add to that. I think that's a very good point. I mean, George, when you go to the cinema, you go to see a specific film. You've chosen that film. You want to go mm. see John Wick 4, whatever. Go see John Wick 4. Because it's like you're going to specifically see a film that you've chosen. And there's some mm. sort of characteristic behind that. Mm. But for me, personally, from time to time, I like to change things up and I'll go see an anime in the cinema. And because we're not in Japan, that is a difficult scenario because the majority of the distribution is delayed. So you won't see it until a few months later. But the experience of seeing it at the cinema, for instance, with a movie called Your Name, it's so much better seeing it at the cinema because of the soundtrack, because of the visuals on the big screen than it is just watching it on your laptop, which you're not going to get that vibe at all. You know, I think there is a big aspect of being in that dark room as well and mm-hmm. the screen being as big as it is. And, yeah, people say, well, you could just turn your light off and watch it on telly. And I'm like, yeah, but there's so many factors to a cinema that that I don't think... Even building a cinema in your house, I just don't know. I feel like going to the movies should be going to the movies. Yeah. It's It's... it's it's like you said that I think it was the perfect word. It's an experience. That's what you go to see. You are going not to go, ah, oh, just kill two hours. You're doing it because you're going for an experience because, and it's, and it's called an experience because that film is going to make you experience something, whether that be a certain emotion or a certain storyline or to experience, you know, um, a certain, uh, certain plot elements or a certain director or whatever it is it, the word experience is exactly what films are and again links back to the original point which is film is art and like you said the cinema is the museum for moving image and it's exactly where you should go yes you could have you know you could get the mona lisa and stick it up in your living room but it's not going to look as good as it does up in the louvre no, yeah, I, mean. I, I love that. Yeah, that's so true. And and I always think to myself that when it comes down to like multi-billionaires and millionaires, they, 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 the common theme is that they'll buy all this stuff, they'll have their home cinema, and they'll have like all of this. But the more I listen, the more they're like, oh, I wish I could just go to the cinema or, you know, do normal stuff that we can do. We've all taken for granted. Mm. There's anything that the pandemic's taught me is that, this is a key part to how we live. We've all been in, inside for a year. 
how many people are missing the cinema right now? I see on the internet all the time little sort of images of people saying, oh, I miss this place. And it's the stairs that you see uh, at Showcase where it goes downwards and you've got the beautiful lights through. And, and it's, it's, you know, maybe it's a sort of movie file type of people, but I love it. I think it's great to see that people are missing the cinema. And it's uh, a th- sector that's suffered. I think, I think you'll find that most uh, cinemas you know right now fortunately i mean this is the other aspect as well i think this is the other issue is that uh i think we'll see a big spike in people going to the cinema obviously because it's an opportunity to do it they haven't been able to do it before for example i'm next literally next week monday tuesday i'm gonna go and watch uh spiral which is the new store uh kind of addition they've got uh predominantly seeing it because i find it massively intriguing that they're going for a very serious kind of thing about a detective and then they've got chris rock and samuel l jackson as two of the main characters which i'm really curious is to go to want to find out why they chose that because they surely they could have picked saw's a big franchise surely you could have got you know, I mean, you've got Samuel L. I don't really understand why Chris Rock was the choice, but maybe I'll be proven wrong. Maybe, and I hope I am because uh, I want to see him, you know, do really well. But um, I feel like, it, I feel like there will be a big spike in, in cinema attendance, but I don't, I think the big issue, I don't think that spike will last because the films that they're going to come out are the same films that we're already used to. And I think very quickly, people are going to get bored again. And I think that's probably one of the biggest reasons why cinemas are so dead because people are just bored of what they're seeing. And when you go on again, when you're going on to, onto streaming services that are taking risks because, you know, why not? They have the money to do it. Let's see how successful it can be. Um, there, And that's why people are resorting back to that. So I think if they want to maintain that spike, definitely um, – need to i think cinema com- uh, cinema companies i think uh m- film industries need to really start looking at that and building and making films that aren't the norm it's i totally agree and there, there's an emotional like we've said this has become a business it's no mm, longer mm-hmm. art anymore no it's not starting to realize that and as people like if you and me we're we're film enthusiasts right so it doesn't take long for us to understand that there's something wrong at the moment it's only going to take a few or five more years for the majority the general public to figure that out and as Mm -hmm. soon as they do it's just going to be like you said downhill from there for for them i mean there will always be a majority on the streaming services that's always going to be a thing now because of how easy it is to access and people of course like you know done watch done but like you said, there's also the experience. And I, I really want to emphasize this because I, do you remember when Avatar came out? Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Brand new idea, brand new theme and huge soundtrack and huge sound that you saw at the cinema. And you had to go see it at the cinema to be able to get that experience. Did you ever feel like that was a revolution for cinema at the time? I thought it was revolutionary for the introduction of CGI because it really did push the boat out with what CGI could do. And I think actually in some regards, it was because of that film that we have, we live in such the CGI saturated world as, as, as we do. Um, 
unpopular opinion, I'm not, I didn't really like Avatar just because I felt like it was more an exhibition of what CGI could achieve. Um, and as much as I found that fascinating, because don't get me wrong, CGI is a massive, uh, uh, what would the right word be? It's, it has been big for cinema, like, and, and I would be silly to say that oh, I don't like it because, you know, modern technology and stuff, because actually modern technology is what makes film making more and more better and better and better because it enables you to have widescreen, the better colors, the HD, the, uh, the use of editing that you can do everything, uh, along those lines. Um, but no, I, I feel like avatar, what it did do well, which is what you said. And I would definitely agree is it was a film that was for cinemas. Yeah. You can't, get avatar does not work is it it was not let's put it this way it's not a film that i've ever had anyone say while around their house we should watch avatar <laughs> that's so true that's brilliant yeah and that's because it isn't you know beyond uh, i mean beyond the cgi which is what it was in my opinion i mean i think there's a, there'll probably be a lot of people that disagree but think it you know it was that it was an exhibition of 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 the of movie making going forward and uh um you know i think it's i think a good film is a film that people can say do you want to put this on do you want to watch this like yeah. now and they can just put it on you know because a good film should be a film that not only it should be a film that you to watch it in its optimal and best way you watch it in a cinema but it is also a film that can be watched in any location and be enjoyed. Um, and I think that's what makes a good film. And you'll find that most of those films are films that are artistic as opposed yeah. to CGI'd and just manufactured. Yeah, definitely. And I was, I was going to ask, Judge, from, from your perspective, what could be done? Because I've asked this before to, a, to another guy, Anthony Edwards, uh, Johnny's brother, who's also a film fanatic and been on the podcast before. What would you do to not just revolutionize or maybe just start from the beginning and just say, what can we do to create new film that inspires people to go to the cinema? Just uh, take, take chances. Like, I understand that. I also don't think the big budgets are always required. I mean, yes, it was 90, it was the 90s. But Pulp Fiction was made off of like a four grand something budget. Like, uh, uh, and it's uh, so not only would the profits be for those industries are much higher, but um, I don't think you need millions of dollars to make film. And I think if anything, having millions of dollars in a film will make people lazy because you don't need to worry about executing everything perfectly because you have the money to make amends if need to, which you know, I think the best films are films that were done on a on a set budget. They can't go over this budget. They have a certain time frame to shoot. Yes, it's more stressful for those industries and those people, but because of you're doing it that way, the film is going to be better. It is going to be with made with a lot of love and a lot of care, and is going to be uh, produced and sold uh, very well. And I think people will be aware of that. You know, I, I I'm not impressed by. Uh, a $200 million film because yeah. not being funny, it should be good. Like if I'm, if you're paying $200 million for it, it should be a good film, but yeah. I'm finding that a lot of the time they're just not, uh, but the films I am enjoying, 
Um, I'm trying to think of a film recently that I really liked. I mean, has been a while since I've been to the cinema, but I look at... <laughs> yeah, for all of us. <laughs> um, when was it? Parasite. I remember, I remember, I went, I think Parasite was probably one of the last films I went to see. Mm. And that was a Korean film. Mm. But what people don't talk about is the budget. It wasn't a million millions upon millions of dollar movie it was a film that was made in korea by a korean industry that do not have the funds that hollywood has and yet won oscars and golden globes and baftas and it won everything because it did what it should have done which was be a piece of art and that's exactly what it was um and and i think that should sum up everything to film industries Make film for artistic nature there uh, and there, and people will watch it. If you if you make it purely because you think this is going to make me money, it's not going to be well created, well written. It's not going to be well produced. It's not going to be well received, and you're going to ba- barely make any money back out of it. Wow, that's what I would change: <laughs> is art, film for art. Do to back you up on that, and I agree with everything you just said. That is a beautifully well. That's the most eloquent way to say cinema. If we were going to go and like stand outside the the bloody MGM or whoever Disney owns nowadays and Amazon, we would say exactly that. And I'm okay to say that. But uh, you know, to back a film that that could back you up is Tim, uh, I think it's Tim Betterberg who got a Oscar for Drunk with Mads Mikkelsen that was made in uh, Denmark. And I don't know if you saw it at all. It is genius genius film very simple concept it's about teachers believe it or not Uh, and it's uh, about how they spiced up their life by increasing a little bit of alcohol to a certain point and shenanigans occur Uh, and it's got an absolutely fantastic uh, soundtrack Uh, one of the main songs called what a life Uh, and it's uh, it's brilliant it's I think I think you've you've done exactly what should be said, which is you said it's fantastic, it's brilliant, it's amazing. Mm. And again, because it's a film that is artistic, and I'd be I'd find it very difficult, maybe not modern time, but people around our age, I'd find it very hard for them to. to I don't know how many people, if you ask them, would actually say that. Oh, the Avengers was my favorite film, or or, or you know, most of the time it's probably a film that is pre twenty tens, which is, in my opinion, when after twenty ten, I think the art of film started dying, um, and I think you'll find that most people like would say their favorite film is a film pre twenty ten. As opposed to post. Um, so funny you should say that because I was going to ask you earlier what period of like cinema was your favorite ooh. period of cinema, and that that's a killer, killer like answer there already. But uh, uh, you know, dive in, yeah. dive in. Yeah, no, I've probably, um, yeah, probably that nineties was very good. Nineties was good for everything though, but then I think maybe that's partly because I was born that era, so a lot of it is nostalgia mm-hmm. and also like, uh, but I don't know. Uh, I mean, yeah, maybe the eighties, nineties, but then Hitchcock was sixties and stuff mm. like that, and um, and Kubrick was seventies and eighties. So there's a lot there. I mean, um, you know, I think I think film started becoming really well, and I think the reason why film 
is so renowned from that time period is because that was the era where the French new wave of, of filmmaking came in. Um, and that really changed how people perceived filmmaking um, and what you could do with films, you know? Um, and, and I, and I think actually, which would be a conversation for another day. I think actually the way in which, um, and how those films are directed, you know, from small things like, um, you know, we notice that on screens, uh, people will always enter from stage right and usually exit stage left. And they do that because it gives us a frame of reference and stuff, but it was where audiences were starting to be acknowledged and what, how they would perceive, um, the films and, and and I think that that is what made it more an artistic form because it was now being done for the benefit of an audience as opposed to whereas now I think films are being made for the benefit of the industries not audiences yeah definitely and I, I'm gonna sort of like narrow in there a little bit because you've you picked up something really interesting with the three sort of areas that we've talked about there is all international all international mm. because like you said the budgets are lower and all of those things but i think they just want to take a you know a new story i mm. always think of the west whenever we're making films even martin scorsese i, I love him to death but he did rip off the departed from <laughs> the departed series which was mm -hmm. created in uh, hong kong which is a center for genius cinema genius cinema because that's where jackie chan came from that's where uh, donnie yen makes some of his best films they take risks they take risks and they make insane acrobatics and kung fu mm -hmm. that we would never be able to produce here in in the west because we're not willing to take the risks the only person yeah. i can think of is and believe it or not i know the mission impossible franchise is very much you know, it's it's a dead horse being kicked further. Um, mm. But Tom Cruise, he does put his body on the line, and I do mm. respect him for that. Yeah, and I agree. I agree. You know, it's very easy for actors like himself to say, oh, well, just CGI me in. Mm. And the company, and a bit, you know, they can do that. It's not going to cost them a lot of money to, yeah. to do that. But, yeah, so when – but that's the thing. When you watch Mission Impossible, right, I get a sense of – it makes me go, holy hell, he's actually hanging. Yeah, if I'm strapped in and stuff, but I ain't, I'm not uh, going to be strapping myself to the side of a friggin' airplane for the, for the sake of a shot. But he yeah. will. And, and, and what he does by doing that, as much as, you know, people can give him a hard time, at the end of the day, he creates an, an excitement. And it's because it's not done through CGI. And it doesn't cost... It didn't cost them a lot of money. He all they needed was a team there who were going to organize it. You pay them. He does the stunt. Boom. Now, and everyone who watches that is aware that he's doing that, and it creates a complete sense of of just it's just incredible. Because and and that is what filmmaking should do. I should feel that was incredible, and he does that. Um, yes, it's through stunts, but at the moment. 
with what else is going, I'll take it. Do you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, it's one of the silly things I always reference for, from the Mission Impossible film franchise that sort of comes to mind is Henry Cavill reloading his biceps in that fight scene where it's mm. rather funny and it's a fantastic fight scene that they use camera shots instead of replacing the actors. Mm-hmm. So it's both Tom Cruise and Henry Cavill fighting with this other guy. And the other guy is a trained martial artist from Hong Kong. So he is this insane uh, guy who can take any hits. And we're seeing smashed mirrors and all these things. It's one Mm -hmm. of my scenes I think of where modern day cinema actually got it right. And I was like, oh, damn, what's Mm -hmm. this Mission Impossible like seven that's actually brought in some some good choreography and and solid sort of like cinematography there. So, yeah, they can get it right sometimes. And and then that can can be intriguing to see. But um, switching topics here, George, I was going to ask, do you have a, a film that comes to mind that promotes uh, sort of like emotion or anything like that or a soundtrack from a film that you're like, oh, this, this has inspired me? I'm sure there is soundtrack that inspired me. I've probably got loads and I probably, uh, I just, this is where you put me on the spot and I'm like, Oh damn, I didn't prepare that. (laughs) Um, A film that has a soundtrack that inspired me. Um, To be fair, I would say most films that use their own scores are very good, but then also, um, because obviously they're done for that. I mean, I, f- I don't want to keep pushing on about it, but like Lord of the Rings again, it's pretty up there. Do you know what I mean? Yep. Um, uh, the Star Wars Phantom Menace with Duel of the Fates. Yeah, uh, just because that was John Williams at, a, at his best. Holy hell! Um, I don't know. It's very difficult. I I would say that. For me, a film isn't. I don't. I don't watch a film. I, a film could be god awful, right? But have the best soundtrack I've ever heard. But that wouldn't convince me that it was a good film. Oh, really? I, I, I'm going to throw a spatter in the works in a minute. <laughs> I have to. For me, for a film to be a good film it has to be a component of everything. It's like a well-oiled engine. It's all well and good having, yeah, cool, the soundtrack works or, you know, or create, or in this case, let's say it's a car. You have this beautiful, gorgeous car. It's amazing. And that's the soundtrack in cinema. But then you get inside it and the tears of all the seats have been ripped out. There's like dog turd on the floor. Uh, it's got, <laughs> it's got, a, it's got a, a tape deck as opposed to a modern radio, you know, yeah, cool. The car looks great, but it's a pile of rubbish. It's not going to work. And 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 that for me, that like, everything has to gel for it to be a good film. And so films like, um, let me think of a film that uses kind of all those components together. There's so many. Um, but if we take something like um, 2001 Space Odyssey, mm-hmm. I choose that because you mentioned the soundtrack earlier being a big, like, impact which it is incredible like soundtrack i mean you know everyone knows it but on top of that the cinematography was there the the mise-en-scene was consistently um 
nice and clear and clean and perfect and trying to really portray this idea of the of the modern world or the future of 2001 um you know the acting in it was done well uh everything was came together in in a film like that and and um and so yeah when you get a film that does everything that's good but i i I wouldn't have said 2001 a space odyssey would have been a good film if the soundtrack had not have had the impact that it had like i also wouldn't say it was a good film if it didn't do what it did with the cinematography with the edit with the the use of the camera work so um i think it has to be a together a package to to be yeah. a good film. i i can name a name a few scores off my off the top of my head that always come to mind braveheart number one yeah just uh a killer score right there that brings emotion and raw energy. Um, I always think of Gladiator, you know, yeah, Gladiator is good through the, 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 the sort of like fields. And I mm-hmm. always picture Elysium, the song that comes on, but a film that has a great soundtrack, but isn't necessarily an amazing film all around to me is the um, sort of remake slash sort of sequel to Tron, Tron Legacy. I don't know if you've ever seen it, but I've seen Tron, but not Legacy. Fantastic Daft Punk soundtrack from beginning to end, and and the film's pretty good. It's a six or seven hour thing. You know, you can watch it and be like, oh, that's not a bad film. It's just underrated. Um, yes, but, but it's the soundtrack that really that that's killer. So I do. If you want to see an example of you know, like ah, it's not all stuck together, but it's an amazing score. The uh, Tron Legacy film, fantastic. Yeah, I'll give it a look. I mean, I, I, I like the original Tron, but again, that was because what it did for, what it did in terms of the visuals, you know, that yes. it was very new and 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 so, um, I feel like now with 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 a movie like that, it doesn't work as much because it's like yeah, anyone can kind of do that, you know. But um, but that's why things like uh, yeah, but uh, yeah, yeah, that's 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 the thing. It's it's. I think everything has to work, which is exactly why I would argue things like um, and I use it because it is a perfect example of of why I think CGI was an awful decision. Is something uh, is something like The Hobbit where they'd already proved that they could make a good film without that. So I don't see why the need to now do it, but um, obviously that probably comes down to budget. It's cheaper to CGI stuff than to get actors. Um, But I think it removes the immersion. You know what the funny thing is about that, George, is that I watched the documentary behind that and I'm assuming you might've seen a few things from it as well, is that they were in the locations and they had the actors and they didn't need the CGI. Mm-hmm. The, the irony to, to me is that, believe it or not, they just reduced the amount of makeup. And I think that's purely because the actors before that actually complained about the amount of makeup they had to, mm. to do in the morning. Then, but then, like, see that? The thing is, the only other argument I could think of is I know for a fact that Peter Jackson loves visual. Like, he loves it. I mean, I mean, after Lord of the Rings, King Kong, yeah, visual brilliant. Um, yep. I think he had a big aspect with um he made another film after that as well. 
engines is it engines yes yeah, yeah that and that's massively visual yeah you know? engines. Yeah, um yeah. and so he's clearly a big visual fan and with the hobbit as well but i don't know i feel like it works if you're being i think it works if it's very self-aware yeah. whereas i don't think in in the hobbit it was self-aware i think yeah. it was very much trying to replace rea- reality which is where it went yeah. it's doubtful was or one yeah, of I, I totally agree I, I personally love the hobbit just because i was old enough to see it at the cinema mm-hmm. and i remember being able to go to the cinema to see it. i was gutted that i you know only got to watch the lord of the rings from my uh, my mom with my dad when i was younger but like that you know at home but at the same time i totally get what you're saying so it's more on a, i have an emotional connection which yeah I, doesn't I, necessarily make it a good film like, no no but i would agree with you the same i it's only in the it's probably in, in the last year that i've kind of started acknowledging that film to not be what i wanted it to be yeah yeah um and i think a lot of that comes down to 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 an aspect of you know, I wanted it to be good. It was that I'd never seen Lord of the Rings at the cinema. I wanted it to be a good film. Um, and obviously, I, you know, it was, I was, but since then I've watched Lord of the Rings, you know, way more times since. And then you go to the Hobbit afterwards. And it was actually to my, um, to my girlfriend, shout out, Noshin. Um, she, we watched Lord of the Rings. She loved it. She said she liked it. I hope she wasn't lying to me. Um, and then, um, and then we watched The Hobbit and we literally, I think she got about halfway through the first one. She was like, no, not into this. And I kind of realized, and I understand why I did at the time. I was like, well, you, that's crazy, but I get it because it just isn't. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's but. exactly that. And I totally understand why also because there's, um, a limited sort of emotional connection between you and the characters. I don't know what it is about Bilbo in in this i don't feel that emotional connection that i did with frodo um or for any of the dwarves i don't know what it is Mm. about the lord of the rings but i feel connected to all of those characters yeah i would i would argue although one thing i would say they 150 percent did right um is that i think the casting in those films a top think martin freeman as bilbo was almost the perfect casting. I do not know or think of anyone who would have played a better Bilbo Baggins. I genuinely can't picture it because I just think he was so good. It's like Ian McKellen as Gandalf. Yeah. I don't really acknowledge that anyone could have done it else any that's, other way. That's another thing. Poor Ian McKellen was having to talk to Green Street screen for half mm-hmm. the film for The Hobbit. Mm-hmm. And I remember seeing in the documentary, he nearly broke down in tears because he was tired of having to just talk to nobody and was just acting on his own. Um, exactly. So and that, that to me that, is just... That takes away from the film. And I think you can see it in the actors, you know, like they, they know that and, you know, that will eventually appear on the film. But, um, yeah, I just think, I think in general, um, that, going back to the original point, that I think for me, a film has to have everything to be a complete package. I love that. And I'm going to chuck a question here because you you literally specifically went for an actor there martin freeman who mm-hmm. you said was perfect casting i totally agree he was brilliant he he was i just felt less emotional connection for that film mm-hmm. what would be one actor that you'd replace in a film that would change the film for the better 
in any film. Any film you want. Any. I'm re- I'm throwing a curveball here because I'm I like to like to chuck it in there from time to time. Any film that I would replace. Trying to think, it must be an actor that I just think doesn't cut it. But then I think for that, I think that's a tough question because I think with that you need to have uh, you need to have a, a, an emotional attachment to that movie or, yeah. or the story at least, um, which is why it's easy for me to go to Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit. But for the sake of the fact we're doing film and not just those, I don't want to pick those films again. Plus, I don't really think there's anyone I would change in any of no, those movies. No. Um, God, how about you give me a film and I'll that's tell a, you. And yeah, I'll, and that's I'll... a really good idea. And I'm going to think of something recent. Not actually, not too recent. I always think of Nick Cage as Superman for some reason when it no. comes down to like your audition for Superman. And I think it's ridiculous. Anyone who let him into that audition in the first place is going mental. So I always think of what could have happened if we'd had a Nick Cage Superman. But um, I always think Henry Cavill is brilliant as the current Superman. Yeah. What would you do if you took the took him out of it is there anyone you'd think of or oh, who could play superman that's a yeah. good one um damn who Henry could play is brilliant isn't he so it's like yeah he's um, very good who could play a good superman i mean i don't it feels weird because i don't think i'd ever be very good at a casting mm. thing um i think casting is definitely a skill I'll make it easier for you, George. Like, it doesn't have to be somebody who's aged. So, if, for instance, if you thought Brad Pitt in his prime or Leo in his prime, like, anyone can be in their prime acting period. You can just chuck them in there and see what happens. Oh, blimey. Um, (laughs) Let me try and think. Who would be a good Superman? Uh, Um... Do you know who I would like to see as Superman? <laughs> I'd like to see Jamie Foxx as Superman. Oh my god, that would actually be that'd be so interesting. I would love to see to see that. Also, just adds to it would be curious to see. Um, yeah, yeah, Jamie Foxx definitely. I yeah. I I think he would be pretty cool. Um, just to chuck in something as well, you said Jamie Foxx, right? And uh, this is linking to something in my mind as well. Did you know that in Matrix, like Will Smith was going to play Neo? No, I did not know that. Like, how mad is that? Like, we're going to switch out Keanu Reeves with Will Smith, what the Matrix has looked like. And now we're going to chuck in Jamie Foxx as Superman. I don't want to see this reality, man. That would be so so weird. <laughs> so strange. I think in terms of... It's interesting that you bring up what you say about like who would you replace because I think that's I think you stand uh, you know you're you're pointing towards a, a, another sort of um, point there which is you know when I was saying about the full package yeah. the one aspect that I would say can save a film despite everything else being awful is the actor yeah. or the actors that you hire. Um, and and I I think that that I, I don't know I can't think of a film sp- specifically that that oh hang on sorry um, I can't think of an actor uh, or of a film that would say oh I definitely need to change however I would argue that um, that people like Tom Hanks for example um, you know I couldn't 
I couldn't see anybody else playing Forrest Gump. I couldn't see, you know, if I look at things like Castaway, I can't really see anybody else doing it because of how well he did it. And Castaway is a perfect example of how an actor can save a film because that is a risky film to make. It was a film that only had about so I mean, I don't know. I can't remember how much dialogue it had, but it didn't have a lot of dialogue because he's on a island. You know, you basically have a silent film. So your actor is super key to that, you know, because you're not, other than the fact you can have a little bit of a soundtrack playing over the top, you need someone who's going to keep the attention of the audience. So I think um, in that aspect, I'd say the only way a film could be saved is their actors. um, Yeah. And then they are the films that get absorbed by actors. Like you don't reference. So, for instance, in my mind, I talk about this a lot. Robin Williams, in basically the majority of his roles, if you think of a movie and Robin Williams is in it, it's a Robin Williams film. You know what I mean? Like it doesn't become. It it it's been absorbed by his character. So, if you think of Aladdin, you don't think of Aladdin. You think of the genie because of how much of an impact he's had on the film. And that yeah. Could be that's that's exactly the very good point like it's exactly actors like that like who do just become the role and and they are um they are that role you know not film specifically but like tenant as the doctor yeah you know, like, exactly you know, it was a it was just perfect it was just mad. there are some times where and again Martin Freeman as Bilbo, and they come as Gandalf. Uh, um, I'd even say things like, um, you know, Heath Ledger as Joker. Yeah. Like, you know, those those are just roles that were almost meant for that individual. Forrest Gump uh, as Tom Hanks, and um, and so on. So yeah, I, I, uh, yeah, yeah. Jack Nicholson as whatever he does because he's just amazing. Yeah, exactly. Um, Jack Nicholson in basically anything he's ever tried to do, basically. <laughs> so good so many actually i'm trying to think of like he's done like love films as well which is kind of crazy to think mm-hmm. that that guy's had the calendar burn to, to sort of keep you interested in ah, those sort of films there's you know another I mean? jack, jack nicholson as joker as well mm, yeah, like exactly. darth you watch you watch one flew over the cuckoo's nest and you watch the shining i mean like it's perfect like that joker was literally a role for yeah. For him, his face, his eyes, the way he talks, the way his mannerisms are, everything. So, yeah, I, I would agree with that. I think there are just some actors that can just absolve roles yeah. and just become that character. Exactly. So, I've, I've ch- I don't want to like throw you any more curveballs. So, don't worry, I'm not going to ask that's anything fine. that's going to make you question. But, do you have a, a guilty pleasure film? Because we've talked about all of the quality films out guilty there. What's pleasure. a guilty pleasure? Film? I mean, a film that I'm embarrassed to tell people that yeah, I like. Yeah, why not? Fuck it. You know? uh, a film that I'm embarrassed to tell people that I like. Oh, I must have a film. It's really difficult. I wish I'd, if I'd known these in advance, I could have, I could have like, uh, found George, them. But I'll, I'll lower the expectations from people and I'll, I'll chuck myself out there. Go on, then. A guilty pleasure for me is either going to be Love Actually or Pride and Prejudice. So I was going to say Love Actually. That was genuinely the one I was thinking before you said that. I'd probably Love Actually, but I don't even know if I feel guilty about liking that <laughs> film because it's a great film. It's, you know what, Hugh... Um, Hugh oh, I, forgot, I forgot his name. Hugh... Grant. Grant, thank you. Brilliant scene. I think we all would like to, you know, dance down those stairs. Yeah. Uh, yeah. for that song 
I also think that film's really good for the fact that it, it showed a way of, of being able to, I mean, because I, I don't really know many other films that have actually done this. And I think it goes under the radar. You know, that film has about, what, 10 different narrative strands? Yeah. And yet somehow, I know they're all somewhat intertwined, but to be able to keep 10 narratives going and me being intrigued by all of them and also not being bored while waiting for... Because normally when you have narrative strands like that, you usually find the fact that you go, like, I don't really care about this. I want to know about what's going on over here. But with that film, they did, that didn't happen. I was very much intrigued in what's happening in your life, in their life, in their life, in their life. You know what I mean? So, yeah, uh, yeah I, I would say Love Actually. And actually a very well-written, well, very, very well-written piece. The, the director, and I'm not going to be able to remember his name. Off Something head. Curtis, Richard Curtis. Curtis. Richard Curtis is a genius writer. So it doesn't really surprise mm-hmm. me on that. No. But nonetheless, exactly. I shall harbour the guilt for liking both that movie and uh, Pride. We, we should be proud. <laughs> proud of it. And uh, last question, mate. Last question of this. Uh, I'm going to throw, throw a big one in here. I got, you know, this question. I'm not sure what it means specifically, but we'll find out. How easy is it to see through the plot holes of Reservoir Dogs and Shutter Island? Um. Ask my girlfriend because <laughs> I um I didn't um and I feel like any film that I, I showed her both of those films right um and she she found the twist about midway through what on both films don't ask me how the minute. Spoiler alert to people who haven't watched yeah, these. Spoiler alert. Um, put put big flashing light here. Yeah, flash. Spoiler, spoiler, spoiler. Um. <coughs> you have been warned. Um, Reservoir Dogs. She pretty much worked it out. Uh, the minute that um they came into the building, you know, they drag him into the building and he's obviously been shot. And, and, and then they're talking about, Oh, there's a rat, there's a rat. And then she was like, I think it's him. And uh, I went, and I went, why? And she was said, because you're not going to expect it to be him. Cause he's been shot. Um, and then I just turned it off in a rage. Um, and oh. then, and then the second one was shutter Island was the bit where um, they found the note that says who is, who is 49 or whatever who is whatever number yeah. um and she went and then she went it's him and and then yeah and then i had to shut that off as well because i was very upset um because <laughs> there's nothing there is nothing worse no this is a this is a uh, a public service announcement <laughs> anybody who who if you're if you're someone and your other half shows you a film okay and you think you know the answer they don't want to know they don't care about your what you think tell them at the end because you tell them midway through you're going to make them upset and it's not worth the hassle especially if they're a film lover like me but um i'm yeah so uh yeah how easy is it for me um not at all because i at most things i i think it's because i spend i spend so long when I'm watching a film, I don't, I'm not just watching and passively consuming yeah. everything. 
what I'm also doing when I'm watching films is actively, um, you know, watching the watching the camera movement and the angles. Maybe I'm not too fussed about what I'm seeing. I'm more interested in seeing if there's a big dramatic scene happening for me, I'm more intrigued in looking at how the camera is positioning this. How is the editing? Is it fast paced? Is it slow paced? As I mean, I'm not acknowledging what the people are saying, but it means I'm not spending my focus to, to looking at the actors. I'm looking at my, looking at how they are making this scene as opposed to, you know, trying to decipher the hidden meanings behind what they're the language that they're speaking so um yeah that's the excuse i feel like you're noshing uh like super smart when it comes down to like movies and i feel like monkey brain like oh, oh a good, good movie like <laughs> just sort of like see it and i'm like oh this is nice shiny uh, movie <laughs> i think it's I, I i think i think you know i think it's more about you know why why you watch films i mean you know if you, you watch a film because you like the shiny movie yeah and that's yeah. a great reason to go watch a film and you should love it for that reason same for anyone who loves filmmaking you know and you're watching a film to watch how it's created that's what you should um you should go and enjoy i think there's more than just i think the thing with film is is a lot of people look at it and go um oh i didn't like the genre or i don't like the i didn't like the narrative whereas okay cool as much yeah fine it might not have been the best film but there must be aspects that you like of it and i think you can find enjoyment in all films doesn't mean it's a good film and i will stick with that i mean a film can be garbage but it doesn't mean that you don't that it's it's not something that you liked so um you know i think film is is subjective totally subjective so um you you like what you like and that's what exactly what is that's exactly what art should do you like it because for artistic sake, because there's something about that film that attracted you. If we all liked the same thing, then film would be boring, as, as would most art. You hear that, people? Like what you bloody like. I like love what that. You that like. is such a brilliant way to end the podcast. George Pierce, thank you so much, mate. You're Absolute very welcome. And thank you for having legend. me. Legend. I've loved it. Um, yeah, I'd love to, if you ever want to talk more about film, Lord of the Rings is clearly a big, <laughs> big thing. Um, I've got an it. entire, you know, uh, playlist for an analysis of, of them. But we're going to jump in. I want to do another one where we take one of your favorite films or a film, mm. that, you know, that we both watch and we can dissect it and do a little bit of analysis. Perfect. Of yeah, yeah, yeah. I that sounds great. Cool. Ladies and gentlemen, George Pierce. This has been a Taylor's Tales podcast. This is Chris's Corner. I'm your host, Chris Taylor. And as always, I'll see you next week.